Hi everyone and welcome to the Spencer Lodge podcast in partnership with Najahi Events. More about them later. Today's guest on the show. Right, this is going to be a bit of a learning experience, all right? So I want you to make sure you've got a notepad if you can and make some notes from what you're going to learn because I think it's going to be really, really valuable for you. So today I'm joined by a really extraordinary guy. He's a renowned entrepreneur, is an investor and a business growth expert. During his career, he has built, bought, and sold 24 companies with a combined valuation of over $5 billion. So he's definitely in a solid position to be offering advice and guidance to other entrepreneurs and investors. He leans on his own experiences and expertise to show others how to scale up their business, helping them to build business empires and create global impact. With his chart topping podcast, Scale Up Your Business, seeing over 250,000 downloads in 130 countries, it's clear that he's highly respected by many people across the globe. His work is very closely aligned to my own, so I'm really looking forward to having this conversation. To the very incredibly talented Nick Bradley. So Nick, thank you so much for coming to join us on the show this afternoon. I appreciate you taking time out your busy schedule. But um, before we get started, I just want to make sure that I can I can frame this correctly for everyone that's listening and watching to this. So guys, look, I, re- I really need you to listen to what Nick's got to say today. I, I met him on Clubhouse of all places. Um, I've since listened to his podcast, which we'll tell you about in a second. But the kind of work that he does will apply to many of you. And he brings an enormous amount in value in areas that I think a lot of us are either naive to or neglect. So I'm going to dig deep. I'm going to allow this 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 essential session to be be a bit of a class, a bit of a school for all of us, okay, with the kind of work that Nick does and, and, and how he helps companies and how he helps companies in ways that I think a lot of you with your own businesses might not even realize the kind of things that you can do. So thanks, Nick, once again. Right, let's, let's do this. Um, give us, what's your elevator let's pitch, Nick? Give us your elevator <laughs> pitch. God, you've just done it. Well, you actually, no, you've done the cryptic version, Spencer. You've kind of sowed the seed and now I have to turn up there and sort of, you know, lay something out, don't I? Um, so, okay, so I've spent most of my career, 15, 20 years in private equity. I was the guy that was sent into companies that were invested in by big private equity firms and I would do turnarounds. So that's when the investment is underwater and everyone's panicking and need someone to go and clear it all up. That was me. Uh, and then I'd do scale-ups. So that's the kind of uh, growth journey. And we'll get into that, I'm sure, heaps today, all the way through to an exit. So I was there to maximize the value of the investment, get to a, an exit to make all the shareholders rich, wealthy, all that sort of stuff, uh, and try and make some money on the way for me. And so that's that's, that's brilliant. Now, a lot, a lot of people go into business and they have grand ideas at the beginning of their journey about what they want to do, whether that's to build a business, to take money off the table every year or to build a business, then to sell it maybe one day in the future. And I think a lot of people get this wrong because they, I don't think they know what they need to do. So they end up becoming what I, what I see as a slave to their business, even when they've got many employees um, because they can't let go of the business or they don't really know within their own capacity and, and levels of knowledge and experience uh, and skills okay how to take a business to the next level and so I think it's really important for people to kind of like get an idea if you are in business right now and you're thinking about your future what are your options and what are the, the the key things that people need to look for within themselves to decide on what kind of future their business should have yeah. Okay. Got it. Well, listen. Let's start with that that first. Well, the point you just mentioned, really, about themselves and 
And I often talk a lot about identity and the identity change that has to happen as you go through the various stages of growth. And that's partly because there are different skills that are needed all through that journey, and I'll go through that. But the mindset that is required also to be able to take those what feel like small steps when you're looking at it, but they're quite big changes to get to sort of what I describe as exponential growth within a company to get to what's called a capital event, which is where you sell the, the company for you know a crazy amount of money, if that's, your, if that's your goal. But if you think about it, someone who starts a business, the stereotype there is, is creativity, usually a bit of chaos, not too much complexity, and quite an external focus. So people are kind of looking out there and they're seeing the world, they're seeing a problem that's there that can be solved. They have a huge amount of energy and passion Right. And, and, you know, there's some fantastic examples of uh, courageous, creative entrepreneurs. Steve Jobs probably being one of the most prototypical ones. But when you get into the scale up journey and scale up is really defined as when you start to bring more people into your business, which you have to as you grow, you have to start bringing in systems and processes to manage. And that brings a layer of complexity structure, as I said, process, which a lot of those creative entrepreneurs struggle with. So the identity shift or that first identity shift is firstly letting go. So I can't control believers now that I've got 10 to 15 people or more in my company. I have to trust people more. I have to be able to step back and sit at sort of 30,000 feet now and then to look down at everything that's going on to make the right decisions. And just that first change from startup to scale up, a lot of entrepreneurs, a lot of founders don't even make that step. Okay, some of them then the business goes backwards or the ones that are kind of intuitive and, and quite clever will bring other people in around them that will mitigate their weaknesses so that the company continue on that growth um, trajectory. Now, when, when, you, when you consider the types of skills that an entrepreneur has, a lot of them, that, that 30,000 degree, you know, I call it the helicopter view, you know, sitting up there running their business from, from yep. this place. A lot of people kind of like run, run their business, they work in their business, but they struggle to work on their business. And so moving from that in the business to on the business, it, I was literally just discussing it with my business partner a couple of days ago. And she is, she's, you know, I said to her, you're, you're going to end up having a nervous breakdown. She's like, well, how would I? I love this. This is, you know, eat, sleep and breathe it. And, I'm, and we were, the struggles that she was having are how do I find the right leaders to lead the various departments so that I can get on and look at the future of the company rather than deal with these issues on a daily basis. And so, so, so some part of it was manpower. And she's like, where do you find these people? Because I find it really hard to find really good people at that kind of level. And until she, because she's very okay. cautious, I mean, until like, she does, she's, you know, because she's cautious in who she's looking for as well, until she does, it's going to be hard for her to take that, that, that next step up. Yeah, I mean, the first thing I'll say there is you've got to have a little bit of grace in terms of, you know, you may not get it right straight away. Finding the right people to be in the right seats in the right structure, which is then going to make the business run like a well-oiled machine is a challenge. It's not an easy thing necessarily to do. It's absolutely possible. But one of the things I do here is I look, remember when I was going into these, these businesses and turning them around, it was very much looking at what have I got to play with? So I wasn't the spreadsheet jockey. I wasn't the financial guy just looking at the numbers. I was in there operationally, right? And so one of the things I believe is that you've got to look at what people are fantastic at, what they love doing and where their values sit around those things. You know, values meaning if I love to do something, it's not going to be an effort for me to do. So I love, you know, creating strategies. I like buying businesses. I like getting involved in, in that more strategic layer 
you know, I'm not great writing the details. So if someone says to me, Nick, go and map out some processes. My eyes are glazing over. But what I will find, right, is I'll find someone um, who loves that. That is the thing. You know what? If, if that's the only thing they could do in a day is to go in there and just map out processes and put things together and put metrics around it, and that's their superpower, you've got to be able to find that. Where it doesn't work is where you think someone can do something that they haven't got the either capability, the energy, or the desire to do. And most often when things fall down is where you put someone in the wrong seat with all the best intentions that it's going to work, but you have to be able to qualify in and qualify out super quick because if you hold on to that decision for too long, hoping that it's going to work, that can start to bring your business back very quickly. Okay, this is really interesting. So when, when you, when you, let's look at our business. We're, we're a business um, and, and we're essentially a group of companies. We've got um, a wealth management side of it, so an independent financial advisory business. We've got an insurance brokerage business. We've got a corporate wellness and healthcare business. Um, and we have a software business, which is a HR platform. And all of these businesses essentially serve each other. And the difference between that financial services business and, and probably every other business in this part of the world is it's not driven by money, as in making as much money and getting as much clients' money under management as possible, creating as much revenue as possible. The focus is on um, really high-quality advice. And so the, the company is a multi-award-winning company. Does it have as many... Uh, per se financial advisors or salespeople as some of the other companies? No, okay. Does it have that whole gung-ho guys out there, you know, running around like maniac, maniac selling stuff all the time? No, but the staff retention is the highest of any company in the industry. The client retention is the highest of any in the industry. And from an award-winning perspective, they're up there. But it's ethics, ethics, ethics that are really at the heart of it, you know? It's like so to the point sometimes where I wonder where if there's a crossover between ethics becoming more important than than commerce so sometimes that's described as culture being more important than strategy in sometimes like that's a famous kind of peter drucker sort of thing my my sort of belief is and i love what you said there by the way because if you want to build sustainable businesses right stuff that creates value that's predictable in terms of how it grows and we can get into the definition between growth and scale up in a sec as well a lot of that cultural dynamic is the thing that's going to create the sustainability because no one's going to buy from anyone right ever unless there is a degree of trust and you know this better than anybody right that is super super important so any time that you uh, cross the streams, you know, to use a Ghostbusters analogy or anything like that, um, you know, you're going to start to break down the core fabric of what's driving the growth. But where people get this wrong is that because they can't measure that, not as easily as they can measure a sales pipeline, a conversion metric, a marketing ROI, they don't put as much attention into it. And then when a business starts to not perform or something goes wrong, could be cyclical like what's happened the last 18 months with COVID, where a lot of operators get into, a lot of founders, CEOs, they'll go into the stuff that they think is going to drive the revenue, but they break down the stuff that's taken years to build, which is the fabric, as I said, of the business. So this is a really interesting from, a, from an investment perspective or a value creation perspective. My view is you've got to look at both, right? You've got to look at the strategy and you've got to look at the things that underpin the organic growth of a business. But then you've got to look at the things that underpin the longer term value of the business. And then you've got to make a trade-off. It can be powerful sometimes to say, we're going to have a hit for a period of time, it might be three months, six months or longer. But we know that if we stick to what's kept us strong, stable, performing for so long, if we stick to that, we're going to get a slingshot effect back 
when the market changes or something else happens. But it takes a brave leader sometimes to be able to first identify that and then to stick with that because it means going down a little bit before you go up in a, in a much higher way. How do people value businesses? Okay, so I'll give you my framework from, a, from my private equity stage. And, and these, these sort of areas, if you like, or characteristics underpin value. And value is really just a quotient of either revenue, usually recurring revenue, or profit and net margin. So if you think a value of a business is usually, is the business got recurring revenue, which is where a lot of tech businesses are valued at. They may not be profitable, but they've got recurring revenue. They can see a pathway to profit. That's where you get these tech unicorns getting defined. Uh, but most businesses are defined by a multiple of their EBITDA, their net profit. Now, how do you get to that is the bigger question, right? So businesses that are driving what I call growth precision. So they have predictable growth. You can look at them. You can see how they're running. Everything lines up. If I turn this lever here, this action happens and therefore this result is obtained. They have these characteristics. Firstly, there's a really, really clear strategic purpose that has not been forgotten in that business. Now, you're probably going to go, well, what, what does that mean? Well, a lot of people, when they get into chaos or confusion or complexity, they actually forget the reason why they started the business. And it's defined really as like, where are you going? You know, is there, if you've got an exit strategy in the future, what's the exit strategy? Do you know what you want to do in the next three to five years or even the next 18 months? Are you clear? And then aligned to that clear strategic purpose, you need a really well thought through, but not again, complex, a simple, simplified strategic plan. And that's effectively, you're here now, this is where you want to get to. I know why it matters and this is how I'm going to execute. So that's, that needs to be there. It needs to be clearly explained. The second piece is, is, the, is the proposition, sometimes called the value proposition, which is more than just a product or service. It's kind of what you were alluding to before, Spencer, around you know, the, the fabric, the values, the standards of the business make sense. Because the value proposition is the whole experience that your ideal customer goes through or has with anything that you, you sell them or anything that you offer to them. So it's not good enough these days for me to have something that's just you know, off the shelf. It doesn't really have any uniqueness or differentiation. So having that remarkable value proposition increases the value of a company exponentially because it creates that differentiation and you're not going to have to compete directly on price. Okay, so that's the second. Third one is outstanding people, right people, right seats. That's huge, but a lot of people get that confused because they haven't done the work to think about the structure that has to sit around that great capability. So they might have great people, but those great people aren't in the right areas. So therefore, you're not getting the compounding effect of that talent. Then it's process, systems, processes, and automation where it makes sense because that's a driver of efficiency. And the last one, I mentioned it beforehand as a, a point more of a characteristic, but it's an understanding of cash flow and profit. So one of the things that it's a pet hate of mine, right? I get asked to go and advise uh, tech businesses all the time that are backed by VC companies. And one of the first things I'll go in there and say, I'll say, okay, so show me the pathway to profit. Ah, oh, no, we don't need that right now. You know, we're going to have this burn. They talk about burn rates, right? How much money is getting sucked out of the business. And I said, then, so that's not good enough, right? You need to show me, even if the profit's not going to come for two or three years, I need to see it. I need to understand that. And so a business that's valuable has that pathway to profit or the understanding of profit, even if that's not being realized then and there. So they're the characteristics that a private equity guy would look at. They're the characteristics that I underpin in any of my businesses. And anyone who's listening to this, look at your business through those lenses and see which ones are good because you'll have some ones that are really performing for you. But there'll probably be a couple where I've just said something in these last five minutes and you're probably going, I have no idea what that looks like in my company.
and that's a trigger then to interesting go and now a lot of people when it comes to to, to scaling up their companies and, and looking at what they can do would typically think um you know, if I want to sell my company in the future, the best thing to do is to raise some investment so I can invest that money to grow the value of my business um, or um, make my business more efficient, i.e. get more out of the people I've got or, 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 or learn how to analyze the costs of my business and reduce them as much as possible so I can create a more profitable business. But most people, they, they struggle to to know what steps to, to follow just to even raise capital. You know, the, typically it'd be, we need to find investors. And so maybe that's go and get a loan from the bank or they hear this term VC, okay, well, what's a VC or, or private equity or then the other one, angel investor and all this kind of stuff. And they're like, well, where do I go and what do I do? Now there's a unicorn here in Dubai that's called um, EMPG, which is um, uh, a property portal. And they're a huge organization now. Uh, and that property portal, uh, they're called Bayut here, which is home in Arabic. Now, I, I know the guys that own that company. They're the first, uh, the first billion dollar business over here. And I said to them, when you first raised money, what did you do? And they said, and they're three brothers that own it. And so I know them really well. And I'm like, what did you do? They said, we went to every single networking event for a year and got nowhere. We didn't know what we were doing. We didn't know what was going on. We just kept going networking, kept going networking. And after a year, we got a phone call from somebody that actually said, I've heard about you through somebody you met at an event. I'd like to talk to you. And they raised their first no, sorry, $7.5 million. And up until raising that, they still didn't know what they were doing. Now, since then, the company's like exploded. But it's really interesting to look at a billion dollar business and three brothers. And you know, one was Oxford, one was Cambridge, one was MIT. The Oxford and Cambridge guys were working in boots, stacking shelves in the UK. So it's like none of, none of them had like a track record of wealthy families. They were bright. They didn't know what to do. And they just went out there and trying to try to find their way. Is, is that what you'd advise people to do? There's, there's so much in that question. I'm going to break it down into a couple of components. The, fir the first thing is, unless, you're, unless you've got a business that needs high amounts of capital, usually a tech business, so that makes sense, where you just, you, you know, you have to build the thing and, and then, you know, obviously you've got something, a proof of concept you can scale from. My advice to a lot of people is not, don't think that you have to raise money just because you're a startup. That's my first observation. Because, you know, more money, more complexity, more problems. And I was involved, and I get involved in this quite a bit, actually. I've done three in the last 12 months. But more recently, I was involved in a business that had 16 investors on the cap table. So these are people who obviously have a share of the business to some extent. And there was a huge infight between the top five investors. And for about a year, the CEO of that company was brought in to trying to break up the fight. And the business just went backwards, hugely, because of distraction and all the other things that happened. So the first thing I like to say is, you know, just because it sounds, you know, romantic to raise money, work out why you want to raise money. And the second thing is don't just think about it, the money, because the other thing will, will be there. You'll go out there, you'll do kind of what those guys did. You'll get out there. It might take a while. You'll speak to everybody and then something will happen. That's quite a common story. But have a look at the strategic nature of who you're bringing into your world. Because in many cases, the money is important, but the value of the relationship and the experience of the person coming in actually counts for more. Because you, you, might get, you might get a certain amount of money or even less money from one person, but the other person has networks that are going to open up to an exit for you one day. You know, they might have connections. I think it was called the PayPal Mafia, where people like Elon Musk and there's a few others, but the, the, all the people who had like, you know, the, the largest unicorn exits in uh, Palo Alto for a period of time all worked at PayPal. 
So, so the point point I make there is, you know, you've got to be really close to these these networks. And what I advise, and this is again for anyone who is looking to raise money, the best thing to do is to go out there and not necessarily raise straight away. So go out there and speak on all the platforms, get on podcasts, be in the circles where investors are, but don't necessarily go there and pitch and have that as a very intentional period of time. And the reason for that is there's nothing more, again, attractive than someone who's got a great story, a great proposition, but they're not asking for money. They're just there, right? I'm just here telling my story, telling my story. I'm always pitching, but I'm not asking for anything. And what will happen is you'll be so different versus everyone out there who's scrounging for cash that because you're not needy, you'll get more people coming towards you. And I bet with those three guys you mentioned, there was probably a bit of, hey, I'm raising, I'm raising, I'm raising. I get so many people asking me, as I'm sure you do, Spencer. And you go, okay, it's much more powerful if you just tell me what you're doing and say, listen, you know, if, if one day if I can, you know, get in touch with you again to sort of, you know, maybe ask about your network or whatever else, that's more powerful than just going out and asking for that's money. That's really interesting that. because for them to become a unicorn, the, the partner they the partnered with, essentially they, 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 they bought one of their biggest competitors here, which is a company called Dubizzle, which okay. was owned by a Dutch uh, private equity company called OLX. And they that, that deal took place last year. However, they met OLX five years ago and they were due to present at an event where OLX were, and they didn't want to present. They didn't want to present to OLX because they didn't want OLX to know what they were doing. However, five years wow. later of just the occasional message, how you doing, catch up and whatnot, then five years later, OLX approached them and say, look, we're ready to sell now, are you interested? And and that's how that all took place. And obviously OLX took a position in, in the parent company of Bayut, the MPG, um, and, that, and that's where it is today. And I find I find it really fascinating that it was like they'd gone out there hunting, 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 trying to find money. Then they'd learned how to raise money and they'd had a few raises. So they got successful at it. They knew what they were doing. But then they were fearful of letting anybody know their secrets. And so particularly their competitors. And so they kind of kept on the down low and uh, felt a bit vulnerable because of it. But those guys... Uh. Every, everything you describe then is, is exactly the... It's the mindset that goes through with, with some of this kind of um, the more... Uh, VC backed or angel backed raises, and, and again, people come to me all the time and say, "Oh, I don't want someone stealing my idea." You've also got to think, you know, at the end of the day, the, the VCs that are out there, the people who are putting money into these businesses, they're, they're getting so many pitches, like literally hundreds and hundreds of pitches. A good friend of mine is a guy called Brad Feld, who's one of the first investors in Fitbit and also Guitar Hero. Remember that game? And he's prolific, right? He's based out of Boulder. And he said to me, he's getting something like 100 to 150 pitches per day coming into his. How on earth do you? How would you even? How would you even find the time to to go through them? Well, I think I think what it comes down to is like you know he's got a machine there and he's got a very specific investment criteria, so he's got vetting going on all the way through. But there, I forget the statistics, but there are so many people thinking that entrepreneurship is this new exciting industry right? as opposed to what it what it is right so people kind of go into it but there's just a lot of competition so my point beforehand around your proposition your uniqueness it's partly making sure you have something that solves a problem in that remarkable way but then it's about the network there's, there's a really great story i'll just give you this quickly um i forget ray dalio's investment firm it's bridgewater or something like that based in the states but there was a, a firm, a business that was going to raise some money um, and they wanted to go to Ray Dalio. And about three months before the meeting, so they got a meeting, but about three months before the meeting, they bought targeted Facebook ads because you can geo-target Facebook ads for everyone that was in something like a 30-mile radius of where Ray Dalio's investment firm is based. 
like really clever, right? So when they turned up and did the pitch, people were like, oh, I've heard of you before. I've, I've seen you everywhere. And the only reason was is because they geo-targeted the ads. But it was a, a subliminal thing. It got them thinking that this was a bigger entity and, and it created more certainty. That's interesting because we had Tony Robbins here in Dubai and he was in the Coca-Cola arena. And we, we for the day he was there, we geotagged the arena. And so everyone that was in the arena okay. saw my stuff. And so, uh, and then there was an association because then Tony Perfect. was on the podcast and stuff. So it was all, <laughs> it all kind of came together. So I know what you mean. Okay, tell me. <clears throat> So, okay, I've got another question for you. Then I want you to give me a few examples of different companies and, that you've worked with. Um, a lot of people fear uh, their competition and would like to eliminate their competition by either uh, buying them out or, uh, or knocking them out, maybe, even that. And, and a lot of people think they would, <clears throat> they would need cash to go out and buy a competitor. But in a lot of your work, it's not always been cash that's required, has it? I've, in, I've done 117 acquisitions in my career across um, various corporate roles and also private equity and 24 business exits. So I've sold 24 businesses again in private equity and, and personally as well. And I've never done a deal which has been 100% cash. So, so the way to think this, and again, this is good for any size of business. So if you're a small business owner, medium, whatever else, uh, acquisitions are something that you have to have in your repertoire as a growth strategy. So the way I describe this is organic growth, which is sales and marketing. You've got to have a great sales and marketing strategy and plan and execution, but you've also got to have really good strategic growth plans. So strategic growth is JVs, partnerships, acquisitions. Because if you think about it, if you go and buy your competitor or buy two or three of your competitors or you buy suppliers, you create a group, you can get such a, I call it multiple arbitrage. You can create value so quickly, so much more quickly than you can by trying to go out there and do traditional sales and marketing activity. That if your goal is to build something that's so valuable that it can sell and there's certain ratios of how that happens, then you have to have acquisitions in your play. So the way to do it is, and this is how I could describe the, the different models very quickly, is there are lots of businesses out there right now, smaller businesses, where the motivation for selling the business is not a standalone cash motivation at all. So you and I might have a business and we want to sell it for X amount of money. You know, that's our main motivation. But there are a lot of people out there who are in their sort of 60s, 70s. There's a big generational change in wealth happening right now. And if you're, let's say you're an acquisition entrepreneur like I am, I'm always out there looking for businesses across multiple sectors that are undervalued, under leveraged, that I can do what is called a leveraged buyout where I'm taking the assets from the business to pay for the business over time. And I'm also agreeing deferred payments with the seller, which means I'm paying for the business from the profits of the business that I'm acquiring over time. So therefore, the amount of money that I have to put into the deal, and I've got some examples of this I can share with you, is tiny, sometimes 10% or less actually, of the um, offer price that I'm going to be paying. Now, the seller is still going to get you know, three times, four times the profit of the business as the valuation, but I'm only paying that out over time again from the profits of the company. And those leveraged buyouts, they've been happening for years across big companies, small companies, the whole gamut, but a lot of founders, entrepreneurs, CEOs don't look at acquisitions generally because they think, as, as you suggested, that potentially you've got to fork out hundreds of thousands, millions of dollars to make it happen. Okay, give me some case. examples. Okay, so I, I'm trying to give the, I've got heaps of them. <laughs> where, where to start? Okay, so, so I'm in the process now of buying a, a small business. So the turnover is just over a million dollars. Uh, it's in the security space. 
and security and um, corporate cleaning and those sort of things, commercial cleaning, big areas post-COVID. They're in growth for reasons that you can probably appreciate. So that business at the moment, uh, the guy who owns it is 68 years of age. He's got two sons. Two sons don't want to take it over. No succession plan. The business has dropped a little bit uh, through COVID, but it's picking up again now with new contracts coming in. And this guy just doesn't want to do it anymore. He's made quite a bit of money from it and has other investments. So the motivation is actually to go and spend more time with his family, his grandkids, travel, all that sort of thing. So the deal that we've put in, in front of him is we've said, okay, so the profit of this business is around 250000 So it's not massively profitable, about a 22% profit margin. So we're putting an offer for round numbers. Let's say the offer is $750,000, okay? Now, from that, I'm managing to leverage around about 70% of that price through assets in the business, receivables that the company has, and agreement to pay 50% of that price, so half of the 750 on deferred payments over three years. So I'm raising finance, asset finance against the receivables. I'm then deferring, as I said, 50% of the price over time. And then I'm putting some cash in on the remainder, okay, which ends up being around about 15% when, when everything is, is done. Okay? So the way to think of that is a business that is worth you know, a million, well, it's worth $750,000 I'm putting in around about $80,000 of my own money to acquire that business. It's already making $220,000, $230,000. i am paying him off from, as I said, installments. But if you just do the cash flow of that, I'm going to be netting about hundred grand a year straight off the bat for that investment of around eighty grand. So it's going to pay back in less than a year. And he'll be paid out over three years now. Yeah, so he gets what's called a closing payment. So um, of the seven fifty. The, ma the majority that I will get through receivables, I will pay to him as a closing payment. So he's going to take out, you know, a certain amount of money halfway, you know, at, at the close of the deal, uh, which is, you know, a, a chunky amount for him. And then he's going to get the rest of it. Now, is your challenge then once you've structured that deal and got the agreements in place, is your challenge then to find the right people to go ahead and go forward and run that business for you, considering he's got no succession planning there? He has got, and this is the great question, he has got a general manager in the business. And so the way to do this, if there's two, two lenses to look this through. If you're an existing business owner and you want to scale through acquisitions, you can go and buy businesses like I'm suggesting through leverage buyouts. You can also buy distressed businesses and just take the customer base, particularly if it's a competitor for yours because you've probably got the infrastructure. You've probably already got a general manager, a marketing team, everything in your business. So in that situation, you can take the cost out, you can take the upside, you can get an extreme amount of growth and, and um, profit from that, right? If you're an acquisition entrepreneur, you're going in and buying a business like I'm suggesting now, I'm always looking to find a number two in the business, normally not very strategic. So someone who's like a really good operational person who can run the machine, who can take a brief and make sure it works with precision, which is what we've got in this situation. And then I can run the business on a weekly basis or a quarterly basis face-to-face. -face. So the way it kind of works is I get metrics put in. I have, you know, I've done this for a long time. So I've got people who can come and help me build what I call dashboards of metrics that I want to measure the business on, KPIs. I review them on a weekly call to make sure that they're, you know, rag status, red, amber, green. And then once a quarter, we'll do a strategy day and we'll go in there and we'll like work out what's the next 90 days need to look like from a commercial perspective, operationally, everything else like that. And so that's the way you can have multiple businesses and build up an empire. They don't even have to be associated because you've got a good GM in there, you've got a cadence to run it. It's not 
not running it. I'm just kind of overseeing it like a chairman, you could argue. And I'm looking at the performance on a regular basis. Okay, so, so from what, what, what you've just told me there makes me feel like um, the option of, of growing your business by essentially buying other companies that are in your space, but buying their client base because you already have the infrastructure in place is actually the easiest way to scale up your client base. Much easier than sales and marketing, yeah. I mean, much more easier than what I call organic, what we all do, which is have, you know, investment in ads. Well, it's not just that, it's because the the cleaning business would be a different type of industry. So for for me and my businesses, it would be um, corporate insurance clients, private wealth clients, corporate wellness clients. And so finding businesses that have got those kind of clients, buying those businesses, I don't need the infrastructure of the business, I'm essentially buying the clients. And and once the clients know that we've taken over that business, then upselling those existing clients is a lot easier than finding new clients. In fact, I'd argue that potentially it could be cheaper than running ads, actually buying a client base. Oh, yeah. Well, yeah, particularly if you if you look for the scenarios that I'm talking about, this generational wealth change. So the, fig- the figures that are happening, which are quite interesting, so there's 10,000 people per day in North America retiring. I think it's something like 22% of that figure own a small business. And then it's something like one in 11 businesses in the last 12 months actually sold that's considered a small business, which means under 10 million in annual revenue. 10 million is still mm-hmm. quite chunky, right. right? It's not small, but it's the definition. So then you've got to ask the question, what happens to the 10 out of 11 businesses? Right, they get shut down, and and this is this is the the interesting thing around this is that a lot of people certainly when they're getting to that age and some of them are in their seventies even up to their eighties I've looked at different deals sometimes they're sick their partners sick the, the motivation of like I want to sell this business for ten times profit is not the motivation you know you're going in there and paying a good price so it's still a reasonable price considering the size of the business but you're also stopping them or preventing them necessarily from having to close it down, which is going to be a cost in its own right, making the teams redundant, all those sort of things. And, and the other point I'll say to your, your piece around, yeah, you can buy customers. You can also go and buy products and services. So you've, you could have you know, great customers that you're, you're already in your business and you want to be able to bring in a range of new products and services that you can upsell and cross-sell to them. You might make an acquisition geog- geographically so you might have a great setup where you are in Dubai, but you think, you know what, I could take this somewhere else. It might be another UAE region or it could be somewhere else even broader. The easier way to do that than launching is to go and buy something established and then bring your systems, your processes, your infrastructure into that business over time. So acquisitions have different layers, but it comes back to what I said around purpose at the very beginning, purpose and plan. What's the intent? What are you trying to do? If you're trying to exit your business for eight or nine figures, have a think about who the buyer would be and then you might want to go and buy businesses that complement the strategy so that you're creating a group that's going to maximize that value um, for that uh, exit that you have the ambition. Are there businesses out there that, that actually hold very little value? I'll give, you, I'll give you an example in my mind. I look at estate agency. And I look at essentially uh, an estate agent business, I don't know, 20, 20 real estate brokers working for the company. All they essentially do is they get listings, they run lads through the property portals, they find buyers, they then make the sale, they get paid their commission, that's the end of the transaction. They might be able to get a kickback on the mortgage or a kickback on the life cover that's sold with the mortgage, but very little else in, t- in terms of you know longevity of client, that's now gone because people often don't buy houses very often themselves. And so if you bought that real estate brokerage, potentially all the brokers could leave, 
the client base aren't, you know, a, a, a constant source of income because people don't buy and sell their houses all the time. And so to me, it looks like a business that, or an industry that doesn't have any or have very much inherent value in it. Would that be fair or not? It's an, I, always, I always let the numbers tell the story. So, so for me, you, you're always trying to keep an eye out for industries that can be disrupted. Like, you know, is there something coming that could change this? It was funny. People used to say, oh, you know, hairdressers could never be disrupted, right? And then COVID hits and like, you know, people can't go and get the haircut, right? So it's, you know, everything can be disrupted is my view. But you've got to look at a business like that. And if it's got a track record, let's say 10 years, I just look at the 10 years financials first. I look at the stability of that. One of the things that is important when you buy a business that doesn't look like it's got a lot to it, like it hasn't got a, a product or service, you're looking at the quality of the processes and systems. So you're looking at kind of how well have these guys grown because they've got a model or a methodology or how strong is their brand message? Do they have a uniqueness in the market that would be hard to build from scratch? Because the way to think of it is if you're starting a business, you've got to build everything. You've got to build the reputation. You've got to build the processes. You've got to hire the people. You've got to create the products. You've got to build the client list, the data, everything, the metrics. And there's risk in that. And the reason you know businesses fail is a number of different reasons, but it's partly because there's a lot of complexity there and it's not easy to get traction. But if you're buying an established business, like I look, I was looking at a business. We didn't do the, um, the transaction in the end, but it was a bridge building business in Tampa Bay in Florida. And this business had 10 years of financials that you would just die for. Incredible. Didn't, never did any marketing. Okay, Everything was referral word of mouth. They, their website was archaic, but they had such a strong reputation that everyone would go to them. Everyone would go to them. And there was one year in the P&L right, where it was doing around 10 million top line, around two and a half, three million bottom line. So you know, reasonable margins for, for what is a manufacturing business. One year it had 20 million top line and the EBITDA doubled. And I said to the owner, I said, what happened? And he goes, oh, I decided to hire some salespeople for the first time. And I, went, I said, wow, that was great. It worked. And he goes, yeah, but it's too, it too, too stressful for me. I, I didn't like it. So I said to my guys, I want you to cap the sales at 10 million every year and just leave it. And I'm like, you're serious? And then I asked him the question. I said, so this year, this was back in 2019 when we looked at it. I said, this year, what percentage of that 10 million has already been realized and this was February. And he said, oh, 70% is booked. <laughs> so I just share that with you because you're right. Sometimes from the outside, it looks not great, but there are things when you get into the machine of these businesses and you go, wow, you know, they've really built something special. That's why I'm sort of industry agnostic these days. I look at every business. I do the due diligence. I look at the numbers and then I qualify in and I qualify did, did, out really quickly. Did, did, so if do people more well, often have a, have a, bigger opinion of their business or more often do you find that they don't realize the potential they've got? Do you know what? It's, it's, it's both, it's both because of these reasons, right? It, it's an emotional thing. And people often say to me, what's, what's the one thing you need to be good at or have as a skill to be successful in this kind of acquisition space. And for me, it's rapport. You, you need to connect extremely well genuinely connect no no crap right really connect in and if you can do that you know because what you're doing here particularly for the sort of deals that i'm doing is you're prying the baby <laughs> away from this person's arms and so so that's really critical and then the other thing is and, that, and that's the piece that needs to be really well managed but the other piece that you said um is very insightful too they don't know what they've got because they don't know what to do 
to someone who started a business in the 60s or 70s, you start talking about the, the power of branding, the power of direct response marketing. A lot of the businesses I'm looking for, like landscaping businesses, they're quite, they sound quite traditional, like uh, car washers. We looked at car washers in Texas. But you go in there and they haven't got websites. And you go, how are you getting business? Oh, we go around, we put flyers in people's letterboxes. Have you ever tried a Facebook ad with geotargeting? Uh, what, no, what? And so they don't know what they've got because they don't have any awareness of what they could do. Interesting. There was a there was a, a couple that I coached in Phoenix, Arizona. I sit down with them. And I'm like, tell me about your business. What do you do? They said, well, we used to be in real estate. We're now in mobile homes. And I'm like, that, that, so, so me, my, my brain goes to a caravan in Clacton. That's where I go. Okay. So that's a mobile. Got it. Oh, man, I, I'm there. I love it. <laughs> anyway, I'm like, well, what do you do? They said, well, we buy secondhand mobile homes. We make them look beautiful and we sell them on um, to people that, that want to you know, have a nice place to live. And I was like, okay. And I'm like, what are you doing to generate your leads? So they said, well, what we do is we have these signs that we, we nail into the ground or we wrap around um, tele, uh, what do you get, traffic lights um, offering $250 referral fees. I was like, so that's your lead generation. They're like, yeah. And then, you know, the local council keeps pulling them out. So we have to every week go around and nail them back in again and tie them back up again. And so I was like, okay, that's interesting. And then at that stage, I was like not, not overly impressed by what, what I was hearing. I'm like, how much are you paying for these mobile homes? They said, yeah, I don't know, between two and $3,000. And I'm like, and how much do you sell them for? They said, well, we spend probably another $1,500 doing them up. So we may be three and a half, four and a half thousand in. And, uh, and I'm like, so what do you sell them for? They said, well, cash, we sell them for about $22,000. Um, or on payments, we allow people to pay, they'll pay a bit more over a few years. I'm like, hold on a minute. You buy something for three or four grand, you're selling it for 22 grand. They're like, yeah. I said, what's the sales cycle? They're like, I don't know, for some worst case, six weeks. So I'm like, okay, this is really profitable. Yeah, it's profitable. How many are you doing a month? Um, well, we do one, you know, if we're lucky, two a month, one or two a month. And I'm like, how many mobile homes are there? They said, well, in Phoenix, there's 200 mobile home parks. I was like, right. I said, and how many mobile homes are on average on a mobile home park? They said about 200. So I'm like, 40,000 mobile homes in this city alone. They're like, yeah. And I'm, like, I'm, I'm sitting there going, okay, how do you get these properties? They're like, well, we go to the, the mobile home park manager. We find people that, you know, in situations and, you know, we, we, we incentivize them. And I'm like, and we, and we run competitions as well. And they said to me, what do you think people living in a mobile home want more than anything? I was like, no idea. And they're like, they love big, huge flat screen TVs. So we run competitions for flat screen TVs on mobile home parks. <laughs> I was like, that's fascinating. But and they're like, yeah, but we just don't know how to grow the business. We don't know what we want to do. And I'm like, you, if I, if I moved to Phoenix, I would come and steal this business from you. I'm like, this is huge, this marketplace. Anyway, within three months of working together, they started, they, they, they just went off the charts because we started to run the ads differently rather than doing the signposts. And, and they then moved from doing one or two a month to doing 10 to 12 a month. And so they'd gone from making $15,000 a month up to $150,000 a month. They're now clearing nearly a million dollars a month just doing mobile homes. And what they do is wow. they- I hope you took a piece yeah, of the upside Yeah, and they there, teach Spencer. people, they run courses <laughs> teaching people how to do it. And they're making a million dollars a year teaching people in America how to do exactly what they do and it's fascinating you know these these industries that you just I, I i've never heard of so i would not know anything about it but that story that story right everything you just described there is pro-typical 
the sort of thing that you'd walk into when you're buying uh, you know, a business. As I said, it's a good profitable businesses. I'm not buying startups, right? I'm not buying businesses that are distressed unless I'm buying them to, to create a group with what I've currently got. So all I'm looking for is what I'd call poor commercial application, more commercial, poor commercial understanding. Because you know what you what you would have done is gone in there straight away and just build a strategy, right? And started to use some more progressive sales and marketing yep. activity, right? And look at the look at the growth, you know. And then they could go and acquire competitors and go, you know, geographic expansion. You can see that business could be worth hundreds. Of I numbers. said to them, "How many other people are doing this in Phoenix?" And they're like, "Oh, we don't know anybody else that does it." <laughs> just like, <laughs> and that you got no competition. The same they're like, "No, we don't. We don't. We'd like to help people learn how to do it." I'm like, "What in Phoenix?" They're like, "Well, there's enough." Mm. Blew, blew my mind, okay? Blew my mind. Okay, last couple of... Well, we did... Uh, I, there was a similar example exactly of that with... And I won't go into the detail. Um, with a solar company, like solar uh -huh. panels company. And they were literally just dropping off... They, they were from Mexico and they were dropping off these Mexicans to walk down streets, literally putting flyers indoors. And the margin, if someone signed up, because they had these government rebates in, in Phoenix as well and all sorts, was just incredible. Like, they could be making... It was certainly... It was tens of thousands per month, just and the scale up of it was incredible. And they just didn't do any marketing, other than people jumping off trucks and. <laughs> it's nuts, <laughs> isn't it? How, about how people still go about those types of methods. Saying that though, you know, you know, pe people you think behind the times. You know, I had Tony Robbins on my podcast, and I said to my dad, "What do you think of that?" Then dad, he's like, "Who is this guy?" He said, "He's a bit arrogant, isn't he?" And I'm like, "It's Tony Robbins, dad." He's like, "No, nah, never heard of him." <laughs> So if people wanted to work with somebody that does what you do, or, or you for this matter, because you're here on the show right now, what part of their journey would they look to engage someone like you? Yeah, so I tend to work on three areas. Uh, I, I don't get involved in, in building infrastructure in startups or any of that sort of stuff. I think, you know, there are a lot of people out there who play in that space. And if you get an investor like a VC, they normally have people who kind of help with that. I, I get involved in people who are looking to grow through acquisitions. So I, I guide and mentor people to do that. I have a whole infrastructure around that. Sometimes that's about where do you start, you know, everything from, you know, what's the specification? How do I source deals? How do I build engagement with someone who's selling them? How do I negotiate finance, the whole piece? So I do that. And I do that for usually for companies that are already established. They've already probably got a seven-figure business. And they're now, they've, you know, they've managed to get the organic piece working, but they're going, well, what can I do now? How can I grow bigger? And acquisitions is something. Normally, when I speak to people and they've never thought about it, their eyes go. Yeah, okay, but well, that's interesting for me because that it. comes back then to the to the person. How do they know they want to grow through acquisition? Because I think that's 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 one of the big issues. It's like not knowing this. You know, before you spoke to me about it, you know, I'd heard about that kind of stuff, but I hadn't really given it any any serious thought about my business. And I'm sure there's a million people out there that have got businesses that are in the seven figure place, but haven't thought I need to grow through acquisition. So how do they get to that point? Well, they, usually one of two things happens, right? And this is, and this is again, in my world, right? You, you've got a business that's been growing really well and then all of a sudden the growth rate is declining, right? So it still, still, still might be growing, but like, you know, you're going, hey, I've got this great business and all of a sudden it's starting to not grow as quickly as you would like, right? So in that situation, normally they get in touch with me because <laughs> that's when I come in and I'll normally look at it and go, okay, well, you can either do more here or you can do this or you can do that and that's where the acquisitions conversation starts the other scenario is hey i'm growing really quickly i'm growing super quick it's really good but i want to grow faster i want to grow quicker you know for whatever reason that could be that i want to do this i want to do that and normally that's where someone will engage 
someone like me or my team and we'll come in there and we'll look at kind of what the options are. But the main part that I tend to play more than anything else is what I call that pathway to exit. So it's, okay, so you're, you've got growth. You want to grow quicker or you want to optimize that. You want to increase the value of your business. But what for? And, and there's a little bit of working back from the end in mind and saying, well, actually, I've got a capital event that I want to create in 18 months. Or, you know, someone's been knocking on the door to buy me. I'm not ready to sell now, but I'm really interested now in, in what that's going to be. And my belief is this, Spence, is that everyone, everyone who's an entrepreneur should have this idea of a capital event in their mind at some point. Because you don't make heaps of money running a business. Like you can make a good life out of running it. You make decent money from it. But when you sell a business, you know, for, you know, the last business I was involved in selling, big one, was 14 times profit, $2.3 billion, US-based ed tech business we sold to Blackstone. And when you get involved in those sort of deals, right, and that's a big one, but even anything like, you know, eight figures, nine figure exits, it's just... So hold on a minute then. How much do you get paid for your services? So do you, you know, in a deal like that, you must have got quite a bit of coin. Yeah, so the way I tend to work with people is, so I've got a mentoring consultancy um, and advisory piece, right, to to how I work, right? So, So if I'm just mentoring someone, then that's, you know, fine. Normally I will start a relationship in that way because a lot of what I do is build on trust as well. But then once everything's working and there's growth coming in, the conversation normally gets towards, well, hold on, how do we, how do we take this further? How do we take this to an exit? So I'm working with a fintech at the moment that's going to IPO next year, we believe. And I've been working with them for 18 months on everything around that strategy. And then what normally happens through that conversation is I'll take a percentage of the deal at the end you know, not a huge percentage, but I get it. But when these numbers are big, it's still it's still reasonable. Um, so that I am then embedded in. So I'm retained strategically as an advisor, and then I get a piece of the upside when the deal is done. And are there many people out there that do what you do? Uh, not in the way that I do it. So, and and let, let me contextualize that because private equity firms, when they go and buy businesses using other people's money, so using institutional investors they often come in and they, they, they take ownership of the full business and then they do something similar to me, but they're buying the business and usually the control then goes away or dissipates for the founder. I tend to get involved pre that first capital event. And so not many other than sort of traditional consultancy firms, but then again, when they come in, it's more of a done for you consultancy as opposed to a mentoring advisory. My belief is if someone has the intention or the ambition to do something like this, Quite often, they just need to have you know their hands held, a trusted advisor, sometimes a challenging support to be able to get things through, and and that's where the the gap has been. That's why I've been able to create a decent business and ecosystem around this. But the other thing I do also, which I've alluded to all the way through this conversation, is I buy my own businesses. So I'm buying small businesses. I'm using the same infrastructure that I have to work with other clients in those businesses, creating groups where they make sense, different different industries. And then looking for PE exits myself. Got it. Understood. If somebody wanted to do this for a living, what would they have to study? So I, I did a business degree all the way back. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, uh, no that's, that's probably unfair. I've been to business school as well, so I shouldn't, I shouldn't say all that. No, li- listen, I, I learned a lot in, in 10 years in private equity, right? Just sitting in boardrooms and all that. But this is my belief. If anyone wants to become entrepreneurial, Let's say, you know where I think this really works with someone? Let's say you've, you've had a job for years, and I was like this for a long time. I used to work in the media game. And let's say you've, you've worked your way up to being a sales director or a marketing director or an ops person, someone quite senior. You run teams. You know how to, you know how to work in business. 
and you go, you know what, I, I don't want to do this anymore. I want to go and do my own thing. Most people's frame of reference is, hey, I'm going to go start a business. And it's, you know what it's like? <laughs> not easy. What I say is, why not go and buy an established one? Your skill set probably works better to that. If you know anything about marketing and sales, go and buy another business and then just use that domain expertise to scale up something that has the foundations in place. And that's what is defined as acquisition entrepreneurship. It's a term that not many people understand or have really connected with. And a lot of the stuff I put out there on my podcast and I talk about now is that's a valid pathway to freedom, wealth and impact. It's just that most people are not aware that they can do it. Nick, this is the, such, such valuable information and such valuable content that you're sharing with us. I really appreciate you being an open book. So if, look, if people want to get hold of you and ask you a question, typically what I tell people to do is to send me a voice note on Instagram and then I will, I will respond with a voice note if, if I can be of any value. I'd obviously, I don't want everyone that listens to this to bombard you with a million questions. But if there's someone out there right now that has a business that's listening to this thinking, oh my God, if only I knew X, Y, or Z, if Nick could possibly help me, what would be the best way for them to do that? Do you know what? I love your idea. That, that idea is actually better. I'm going to steal it because people send me emails all the time. I, I tell you what I, I, I say this, right? My podcast, Scale Up Your Business, I answer so many different questions on everything we've covered today. Not always easy to find in a podcast, as you'll appreciate, but in there, it's there because I give everything away, right? Everything. So, so definitely go and listen to that and you can see chapters on acquisition, on, so episodes on acquisition entrepreneurship and scale up and all that. I love the voice um, note idea. So I'm at Nick C. Bradley on Instagram. Uh, the other thing I do is every week I run a clubhouse room. So it's 1 p.m. UK time. It's called the Scale Up Room. And it's funny, a lot of people come to that from listening to the podcast or, or conversations like this because that's an opportunity to ask me questions live. Okay. With other people what what day stage. of the week is it? Um, but it's Wednesdays, 1 p.m. Uh, UK time on Clubhouse. It's called the Scale Up Room and it's part of the Scale Up Your Business Club. So that's a live environment. Some people like to come into those environments, but I love your idea. If people want to ask me a quick question about anything that I've covered today, Instagram, at Nick C. Bradley, voice note, you know what, that's perfect because I can then just come back and answer that quickly for people. I can't, I can't thank you enough for sharing your time with us today. Thank you so much, Nick. No, it's been excellent, Spencer. I've loved being on the show. Thank you for it. And uh, yeah, catch up with you soon. Well, I hope you enjoyed that episode. I certainly did. Nick knows so much about taking your business from where it is right now, scaling it up to where it really needs to be, selling your business, having an exit strategy, because so many of us don't, do we? We're in the business, we're living the business, we're earning money from the business, we're taking a dividend from the business, but we're not thinking about how we can sell that business and move on to our next venture. So it's always important to mention people that you partner with and partners for the podcast are Najahi Events and Najahi Tribe. Now, Najahi sounds like an unusual word, and it is, but it's Arabic for my success. And Najahi have brought some of the world-leading public speakers, motivational speakers, inspirational leaders across to Dubai over the course of the years, and Abu Dhabi, mind you. And Najahi brought, I don't know, people like Tony Robbins, ever heard of him? Okay, Nick Vojcic, no arms, no legs, no worries. Lisa Nichols, Prince EA, Jay Shetty, uh, Alicia Keys, and people like this. And they bring them in and they run events. And from those events, we go and we learn from these incredible people. On top of that, they launched the Najahi tribe recently, where they have a collective of the world's greatest trainers, that literally you can join, become a member of, take advantage of a training from all of these different people, like real experts in their field. 
I've got a sneaky suspicion I might be one of them as well. But anyway, <laughs> hopefully you will go and check them out for me because you enjoy these episodes of the podcast. And remember, it's always team effort and I can't do it without the support of these people. So go check out Najahi Events, N-A-J-A-H-I events.com. Thanks for joining me on the show today. If you're listening to this on iTunes, then please leave me a five-star rating. If you're listening on any other podcast app, please like and follow, leave comments. The more engagement that we get, the more that these, these apps will push this content out to more people and they can benefit from it just like you.